0: And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usri and I'm happy to welcome Dr. Christina Lane to the program today for the first of a two-part interview. Dr. Lane is a professor of film studies and the chair of the Cinematic Arts Department at the University of Miami. Her most recent work, which we'll be talking about today, is Phantom Lady, Hollywood producer Joan Harrison, the forgotten woman behind Hitchcock, which is now in paperback from Chicago Review Press. Phantom Lady won the 2021 Edgar Award for Best Critical Biographical Work. Dr. Lane, women's history in films, especially behind the camera, has been ignored or even kind of covered up in a lot of cases. How did you first learn about Joan Harrison and her work in movies and television?
1: I first learned about Joan Harrison actually through a film course I was taking that was a Hitchcock film course. And I was interested in in women, and I learned actually about how many different women had been influential in Hitchcock's career. And actually, where I was at the University of Texas at Austin, there was an archive that luckily had some of her files. So when my professor pointed me in that direction and suggested I do a paper on her, I was really excited to do that, but I didn't realize it was planting the seeds for me to write this book, you know, 20, you know, 20, 25 years later.
0: How difficult was it to track down primary source material for this project?
1: That was really difficult, partly because Joan Harrison had already passed away and had not left any, any primary, you know, no collection. There were no Joan Harrison papers to speak of. And also I found that it was really the only way to access her was to go through, you know, the, the collections of say Alfred Hitchcock, right. Or other kind of big male figures, to be honest with you, that uh, that then were, kind of coming at her from an angle. So there might be just a sliver of, of, you know, folders and they weren't really focused on Joan Harrison at all. So I would kind of piece together little bits and pieces to find the Joan Harrison that I was looking for. And then of course, looking for people that might've known her, um, you know, she lived from 1907 to 1994 so, and her career really ran from, you know, 1934 in mid 1930s through the mid 1960s. So most people that had known her in her prime had passed away. And that was just really hard to find primary sources that might offer a glimpse of what she was really like.
0: I remember a couple of years ago, there was a book about Zalka Fiertel that had come out. Was there any information in that book? Did that come in time for you to get anything from there?
1: It actually didn't. That came out around the same, you know, maybe just right prior to my book coming out. So although, you know, Joan Harrison used to go to her house and kind of run in those circles. So, you know, I was kind of enlightened by the fact that they that they would have come into contact with each other. But I wasn't able to use that book, unfortunately.
0: Ms. Harrison was born and raised in England. She had a fairly privileged upbringing Although, you know, be it the the limitations that women had imposed upon them back then.
1: Yeah, she so right. She was born um, in Guildford, Surrey, about 30 miles outside of London. And she was born to a newspaper family. So she really did have a lot of privilege. She was born into, you know, upper middle class family with a lot of expectations, really, that she would marry, as she said, the boy next door, but kind of the barrister next door. And. What she wanted was to go to Oxford, which she finally convinced her parents that she that she could and should go to Oxford and then what she really wanted was to become like a reporter and to live the life of kind of a free career woman. but her father was against that, at least as she tells it, she had to struggle very very hard to be a professional woman finally answered the ad you know that that Alfred Hitchcock placed for. A director's assistant and this helped her get on her way and kind of break out of her parents mold and start her own her own job as alfred hitchcock's assistant
0: now she had also studied at the sorbonne and that had provided one half of the requirement that hitchcock's ad had specified
1: Yes. Her major was kind of the languages, right? The modern classics and languages. And so she did before going to Oxford, she spent a year at the Sorbonne and she developed her French. And then when she was in an interview with Hitchcock, what he was looking for was someone actually who could speak German to help translate for his actors and his crew that were coming in from Germany. And so he asked her one of the only questions that he asked her was, do you speak German? And she felt completely lost and said, tried to kind of salvage the interview by saying, no, but I speak French. And he said, well, that's fine. I'm famished. Let's go to lunch and hire her. She had her wits about her.
0: And the fact that she even saw the ad in time for the interview was serendipitous that she got it.
1: Yeah, it was. I mean, I think, you know, as she tells the story, she had, you know, spent like a a late night, you know, evening as like a bachelorette out on the town and and woke up and a a friend had sent her the ad in in the newspaper. So she kind of jumped right, raced out of bed and and got dressed and took the train to the studio and then found that there was a really long line and that she saw that she would never get to the front of the line in time to be interviewed. So She told a couple of fibs to the guard and said that her sister was having a baby at the hospital. So this was, you know, a really urgent matter. And she did have a sister, but the sister was not having a baby. But, you know, she basically acted her way into Alfred Hitchcock's office.
0: Now, did she ever have any aspirations to be in front of the camera or did she always want to make the pictures?
1: She had taken acting lessons in college and people describe her at Oxford as always having either a script or a book under her arm that she she really was someone who loved you know to read and to perform and she did actually sing but i think that she didn't have aspirations really to be an actress and that i think for her she was a bit of a snob right and so she wanted to be a writer and when she joined hitchcock's team she did do a screen test because she was a stunning blonde she was quite a gorgeous woman. And I think that they saw what she was a potential asset for the studio. But during the screen test, she really kind of bombed it. And they immediately realized that she would be much better as a creative person for them. So no big career (laughs) as an actress.
0: (laughs) Now there's the legendary trope of the Hitchcock blonde. Do you think she was one of the inspirations or just one of the, the types that he was drawn to over the years?
1: Right. Yeah. So this is one of the cases that I make in the book that she was the prototype, you know, that she was kind of the original Hitchcock blonde. I really think that a case can be made that the more that I looked at kind of her arrival on the scene for Hitchcock and the way that his imagination was beginning to really get going in the mid 1930s that you know she begins to make films she begins to kind of become part of that team and become and kind of be in the room during the man who knew too much and also become part of the writing team and really a creative force as they make sabotage but then also particularly the the 39 steps which stars Madeline Carroll and Madeline Carroll is is talked about as out kind of the first fully developed Hitchcock blonde who's you know kind of the ice maiden who underneath it all has these burning desires or particularly just this kind of inner mystery. And you can definitely describe Joan Harrison in that way. And I talk a lot in the book about how Hitchcock probably had, you know, this kind of inner longing or inner desires for Joan Harrison that ended up playing themselves out in a lot of his films.
0: You write Hitchcock had a a very, complicated relationship with his own sexuality it, it seemed that he was so repressed in so many ways that it had to find its way somehow or another and it seems like the movie screen was one of the ways
1: yeah yeah you know I'm also kind of following in the footsteps of other biographers of Hitchcock who talked about this that that he was that Hitchcock was at times you know asexual he once referenced himself as saying that he would have been potentially uh, gay if he hadn't you know if he hadn't have met Alma Revel, his wife, or married Alma Revel. But I think he's, you know, he was very playful about defining his own sexuality and also very kind of vague about it. And I think that for me, the most interesting dynamic was the one that played out between Alfred Hitchcock and his wife, Alma Revel, and Joan Harrison, because it became clear that. He had feelings, you know, he, he told his, one of his fellow writer or one of his screenwriters, Charles Bennett, you know, there were only two women that I could have married, Alma Revel, whom I did, and Joan Harrison, whom I didn't. And Joan was really part of the family with the Hitchcocks. She was within a year or two of working with Hitchcock. She was traveling with them. She, they would travel to Italy and France. And they would spend evenings together and they would go, you know, to, to plays and out to dinner all the time. And when they ended up going to the United States to work, she was the only person professionally that he took with him. So she traveled by ship, you know, with Alma and Hitchcock and his daughter to Hollywood. So I, I find it interesting that that she was practically living with the couple and that Alma saw her in many ways as a sister, you know, as a very good friend. At the same time, Alma Revel had to contend with Hitchcock's obvious desire for Joan Harrison. So this must have been a really complicated dynamic between the three of them.
0: Alma was very instrumental in Hitchcock's work as well.
1: Yes. And Alma Revel Definitely, just as far as collaborators go, you know, male or female, Alma Revel was the most important collaborator for Hitchcock. And so, you know, when I talk about Joan Harrison being important, I would definitely put Alma Revel as first. But I think that it's so important even to pay attention to the way that Alma Revel is often ignored. Her story is fascinating that she comes into Alfred Hitchcock's life. She is actually making films several years before Hitchcock is and they meet at the studio and he kind of sees her right from across the studio and immediately identifies her as a pro, as someone that he fancies, but also more importantly, as someone who knows a great deal about film. So by the time she ends up making a film with him, which is in the early 1920s, at that time was only about 21 or 22 years old, she had already been an editor. She'd already been an assistant director, an assistant producer, a floor director. And so she was writing in the trade press about what makes a good movie and how to be a good filmmaker. And she really imparted a lot of this wisdom on Hitchcock. And they together began to conceive about theories about movie making. And then she consulted, you know, before he made any film, he would consult with her about whether or not he should make it. And during the process, he also used her as an advisor. So all the way through, you know, from the early 1920s through the mid-1970s, she was really important to his work.
0: So when she first started working for them, what were her responsibilities, and then how did it grow in the next few years?
1: Right. So when Joan Harrison first began, you know, she's hired as a secretary. And so, you know, the hilarious part about all this, and it's kind of a movie all to itself. I could have made a great movie, is that within just a couple of weeks, Hitchcock realizes that she's the worst secretary he's ever had. (laughs) And, um, you know, she couldn't type, she couldn't take dictation, she couldn't take notes. And so he fortunately saw that she had all of these other strengths and moved her into what we would now think of as the story department, as someone who would read scripts for him. And give him suggestions on on what would make, you know, kind of what source material would make a great script. What plays or short stories or novels would make good movies for him. Which meant that she quickly learned what Hitchcock, kind of what kind of a filmmaker Hitchcock was. And she, within just a couple of years, was helping to write, you know, scenes. And then uh, within, you know, a short time thereafter, she was she could be considered a screenwriter, one of his screenwriters. She may not have been getting formal credits, but she was kind of an equal screenwriter on the team. And then by like 1939, with Jamaica Inn, she earns her first screenwriting credit. And that's a British film. But by 1940, she was actually, you know, she was a, a writer on Rebecca and Foreign Correspondent. And those are both Hollywood films. And she has actually the distinction, I don't think that anyone has earned this distinction yet of being nominated in the same year for Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Original Screenplay, both in the same year with Rebecca and Foreign Correspondent, which just shows you how quickly she rose in terms of her power with Hitchcock.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that run of Rebecca... Foreign Correspondent and Suspicion. I can't think of very many other three movies in a row from any creative team that could top that run.
1: I agree. Yes, I agree. Yeah. And, and to think, you know, that they're putting these out so quickly. Right. And I think Foreign Correspondent had like over 11 writers, you know, on them on, on that script. And so one of the things that Joan Harrison was doing was really functioning as a producer as today, what we would call a creative producer, because she's helping to make sure that the vision of the film is coherent and kind of um, corralling all of these writers as they rotate in and off a script. So, foreign correspondent would have been a really busy project, but she's the person who's making sure that it that it from beginning to finish is is a coherent and seamless film.
0: It was her kind of eye for where the story might lie in a bigger work with young and innocent that I thought seemed to be like a real pivotal point in her career.
1: Yeah. So if you were to look for kind of the first film that within Hitchcock's oeuvre that, you know, is a Joan Harrison film, so to speak, is really has her signature on it. I definitely would say Young and Innocent, which came out in 1937, has all of these marks of her interest. That was the first film that she took to, or, you know, the first project that she took to Hitchcock and said, you know, I really want this to get made. You, you really have to pay attention to this Josephine Tay novel so she really developed that one, helped adapt that one. And it, it's, a, it's a film that focuses, you know, on this young woman who's really in her teens. And she's the daughter of a police, you know, a constable. But she sets about kind of solving, solving the mystery. So it takes a book that doesn't necessarily focus very much on the daughter's perspective. And as Joan loved to do, you know, turns, turns it into kind of a female detective story.
0: I went back and watched Young and Innocent, and that's one of the Hitchhoks I, I hadn't seen before. I'll have to say it wasn't quite the, the slick experience that his, his later films are.
1: No, right. No, it, it's, it's not. And it's, you know, it's kind of a, a, a rough, not, you know, an unpolished gem, I would say. So you could see he's still working out, you know, he's still working out his formula and his filmmaking. Also, the teamwork, right? The teamwork is also a bit rough. So I really think it takes until the late 1930s and the early 1940s for, for the slick, smooth filmmaking to show. But the other thing that you have in play is the budgets, you know, the production budgets. And so a lot of the films that Hitchcock would make in that period of the, you know, kind of 1935 to 1939 are also rough because of that.
0: We'll talk about the movie that provides the title for the book, Phantom Lady, a little bit later. But it, Drumming played an integral part in those two different movies. I just thought that was a really strange coincidence.
1: Yes, that is true, especially if I'm, if I'm trying to make that Joan Harrison connection, right? That scene in, in Young and Innocent where basically the story culminates with a very, in terms of the artistry, right, of the scene where you have the villain or the culprit is revealed through um, this extended kind of crane shot, you know, while you have him drumming rather dramatically but he's also in blackface you know which is something that is really problematic i think to the to the film and definitely something in, in in our day that really stands out and i'm not quite sure in their day what they you know what they were making of of this by putting by kind of masking the culprit you know in in blackface and having his eye twitch you know behind the blackface as being kind of the big the big sign that he that he's the bad guy
0: Believe it or not, until like the late 60s, early 70s, there was a British television show called the Black and White Minstrel Show. And they still did blackface well until the late 60s, early 70s.
1: Right. Yes. Yep.
0: Also, there's a, a hilarious scene where a pair of glasses are the ultimate disguise in an escape. And it was I thought it was really funny.
1: Yeah. Well, you've seen the film more recently than I have. Mm. So is this at the, uh, the party or is this, As this during, is
0: during the, the I think the arraignment right. of the, right. the young man?
1: Right, yeah, yeah. And he picks up the glasses from his attorney exactly to escape the the trial. That's right.
0: It worked for Superman. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So how did she actually start to integrate into the the official writing of the these films?
1: Yeah. So she, you know, it, it started kind of scene by scene where she would choose she would come in for particular scenes and she was known for paying great attention to character. And she actually, I think, um, saw that Hitchcock was particularly skilled at what we call kind of uh, kernel moments, right, or very individual moments. He would like to see things, particularly big, kind of the big scenes. And so where he, he, he wasn't that skilled was stringing everything together and seeing how you fit every moment into a long Storyline. And also, he would readily admit he wasn't particularly interested in deepening the characters and finding their character arcs. Whereas, this is the reason that Joan Harrison, you know, that this was her reason for living. She had grown up on reading novels and she cared about character more than anything else. So, she would generally pick or be drawn to one or two characters within a script and use those scenes to, to deepen them or, or give them dimension. And eventually she went from writing, you know, individual scenes to kind of focusing on an entire screenplay. But also I think she very, you know, by the time you reach 1938 with The Lady Vanishes, which is only about three to four years after she's begun, she really did step back into that producer role, she's working with people and making sure that the screenwriters on the job were kind of all the nuts and bolts are working and that all the pieces are fitting together. She was a big picture kind of person.
0: In your watching of the Hitchcock films and in the research for this, did you notice a shift from the characterizations that she was able to provide in her screenwriting to what Hitchcock had directly after she left the, the group?
1: You know, I mean, I I would definitely I would not make any um, leap such as to say that suddenly, you know, the characterizations like got more superficial or got you know less interesting after she leaves because his work right after she leaves is really quite incredible. You know, with something like Shadow of a Doubt, that's one of his best films. Both in terms of the the men and the women in, in those films are really well drawn. So I, I'm not sure that there's a lack of continuity, for example, or some major shift. But by that same token, I also know that she was continuing to give him advice and they were continuing kind of that ongoing conversation that they'd always had. So it's not as though she like left 100%. She just wasn't working, you know, like under him anymore when she was working on her own on her own thing. So I think like the more interesting contrast really is that she starts to when she turns to her own work she she looks at different character facets you know so she's interested in in different characters but he kind of continues to take that like the Teresa Wright character looks a little bit like the Nova Pelmbeam character that we've seen in in Young and Innocent and the Man Who Knew Too Much but just much more fully fleshed out
0: so with Rebecca a top novel of its day from Daphne du how do you think the adaptation she worked on compares to the original novel?
1: You know, I think one of the things that, that happens when they're adapting Rebecca is mm-hmm. that they're subject to censorship, and the, the Hollywood center, censorship body, the production code administration, is really rigid at that time. So one of the most important points in Rebecca is that the you know the main character in terms of the, the male the male the husband the main character maxim de winter is is basically a murderer you know not to spoil anything <laughs> but but in in the novel he's he 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 really did even if there are extenuating circumstances he killed his wife Rebecca you know and so they can't let that happen in the in the film and they also have this dilemma of how they're going to represent Rebecca. They know that they don't want to show her on screen. Then how are they going to create this, you know, super overpowering force where we feel that Rebecca is there and we kind of envision a Rebecca, even if she's not embodied by a character. So those are some of the major kind of dilemmas that they had while writing. And so a lot of, it's like they went through a lot of contortions over these 18 months of writing in order to find a way for Maxim de Winter to still come off as a potential murderer and then at the end to to reveal that you know the death of Rebecca was kind of accidental and he you know he's only quite only a little bit shady mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but he's still worthy of of keeping his uh, his wife the second Mrs de Winter played by Joan Fontaine so those were some of the difficulties and that's those are some of the big differences in terms of the novel You know, and I guess the other thing that's obvious is the novel is told from the first person, you know, it's told from the perspective of I, um, literally, I found, you know, Manderly to be really spooky, for example, right? And so when you read the screenplay, if you go to the archive and you read the script, they never change that. They never give the character a name. And they don't even change the exposition within the script to say, you know, like the the protagonist walks across the room or, you know, the girl walks across the room. Although I think sometimes they might mention the quote unquote girl, but they, they use I. So literally it'll say I walks across the room, you know, and they wanted to remain that faithful to the novel. So they were really concerned about giving you a first person perspective, which I do think they, they really do quite well, actually, in terms of giving you everything through Joe Fontaine's point of view, you know, like even to the point of giving you over-the-shoulder shots most of the time in the movie.
0: Well, and just the concept of being called the Second Mrs. De Winter, I think, mm-hmm. a much stickier concept than if she would just have a regular name.
1: Absolutely right, because you really do feel that this is an identity crisis and that she doesn't have a sense of self. And I think that that does carry over quite well from the novel to the film. And probably if if Joan, you know, Joan Harrison wanted to make Rebecca so badly. She was desperate to make this and she brought the book to Hitchcock and Lobby advocated very hard for for this book to be made into a film. And I think that it was precisely that crisis of identity that she was really quite preoccupied with.
0: And so we go from this gothic film and just all this repressed feeling and suspicion on each other to Foreign Correspondent, which is such an action piece in its way. And it has the, the wonderful comic relief from George Saunders in it. And so the, the tonal shift seems so stark between those two films.
1: It does. Yeah, it really does. And, you know, I, I, I I'll be honest. I don't think that Joan Harrison loved <laughs> the, um, the spy films, you know, and, and it probably wasn't as invested in foreign correspondent, Or, you know, later when she when she writes, works on Saboteur, I think that she tried as much as she could to focus on the kind of, you know, the rapport between the couple and the way in which the way in which uh, Joel McRae's character kind of interacts with with Lorraine Day and kind of learns, you know, kind of who he is through the journey that he takes. So she's interested in it from these perspective, the perspective of, of character and through the romp, right, the kind of romp that he takes with this potential partner. But in terms of the kind of espionage plot and kind of um, going from point A to point B, I don't think that she really was all that invested. But it is, you know, to me, it's quite enjoyable. It's really fun, and it gets... It gets more fun once we get, like, kind of into the last third of the movie.
0: And Joel McCrae probably is the weak link in that movie.
1: Right. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that he has the strongest performance. Right.
0: I think we have a lot more to talk about. Would you like to come back next week and talk some more about Joan Harrison and Phantom Lady?
1: It would be my pleasure. I would love to. Thank oh, you. Oh,
0: wonderful. So we'll talk to you next week. Dr. Christina Lane is the author of Phantom Lady. Hollywood producer Joan Harrison, the forgotten woman behind Hitchcock, is now available in paperback from Chicago Review Press. Come back next time for the second part of this interview, in which we'll talk about Joan Harrison when she leaves the Hitchcock organization to produce films and television. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced by Stephen Usry and is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. Any retransmission or reproduction without the express written consent of FM 89.3 WIPL of the Memphis Public Library and Information Center, a department of the City of Memphis, is strictly prohibited.